Welcome to Gathering Gold. This is Cheryl Paul. And I'm Victoria Russell. Today we are talking about nighttime. So before we go more deeply into the subject of of nighttime and nighttime anxiety and things that come up for us as the day is winding down, I'm just going to tell a little story that relates to the themes we'll be unpacking. So one night within the last two years, I was lying in bed and my boyfriend Martin was already asleep next to me and I was struggling to fall asleep. And I was lying there in the dark and I suddenly had this memory of being three or four years old. And I was in my bedroom that I shared with my older sister lying in bed and my dad was in the room and I think he was holding my baby brother and kind of rocking him to sleep and walking around the room. And he was singing a lullaby, which was La La Lu from the Disney movie, The Lady and the Tramp. Mm-hmm. And I remember as a little three or four-year-old that my heart would just ache when I heard him singing this lullaby. And I would be lying there in the dark and just feeling this tenderness and this sadness and this aching feeling with some sort of sense that this was all temporary, that one day I wouldn't be with my parents and I wouldn't be with my siblings and just feeling like the tenderness of a parent's love or family love. Mm -hmm. However, I conceived of that as a three or four year old. (laughs) Mm. And I was, as I was lying there with Martin, you know, 25 years later or something like that, I just had that memory and I felt that ache in my body. You know, now I was with someone who I felt very safe and loved by as well in a different way. And I felt that same ache and I could hear that lullaby. Mm. And There's just something about lying there in the dark at night that can feel so tender and so vulnerable. And I feel like can just open us up to this, I don't know, different space of feeling something really deeply Mm. and even how time can feel kind of different. Mm. So I wanted to share that story because I think it relates to the themes that we're going to talk about today around what can come up for us at night. And when, as we are approaching nighttime. Hmm. And not only what can come up for us at night, but particularly what can come up for the high sensitive people among us, the highly sensitive child that you were three or four Victoria is quite extraordinary that you were tapped into the finite nature of childhood, of family life, of the sweetness and tenderness of nighttime and of your dad's voice and of being in the same space, the same physical space as your siblings and your dad. You were it like like you wrote to me in, in the email when we were corresponding about this episode. <laughs> your your tiny little highly sensitive heart 
beautiful, exquisitely beautiful, highly sensitive soul already at such a young age feeling into the pain around time passing. Yeah. Which is such a core pain that highly sensitive people are aware of quite often from a very early age and that it came to you, it came back to you at night all those years later in that space of silence with another safe attachment person um, really lays the groundwork for, for where we're going to go today, especially um, in so many places, which I'm sure we'll come back to, but, you know, we've been talking about you and I, um, the micro moments, the, those small transitional times that tend to get overlooked in our culture because people don't even know how to name them. We don't even know how to discuss them except highly sensitive people feel them. Mm -hmm. They feel that sense of dread or sadness or emptiness or longing that happens at twilight or in the morning. And, to, and today we're going to talk about that feeling and that liminal space and that incredibly vulnerable time of, of night that tends to sort of touch people often in the evening when the light starts to fade, highly sensitive people being highly attuned to shifts in light. And if we don't name it, if we don't name what's happening, oh, the light is shifting, darkness is coming. There's a feeling here. I'm not even sure what it is. I don't even have to name it exactly. Maybe some kind of emptiness, maybe some kind of longing, maybe some kind of ache. But all I need to know is that there's a feeling being activated by the shift in tonight. And if we don't name it, it so easily morphs into anxiety because it's the naming. What goes, what goes nameless often latches onto anxiety simply to have something to latch onto. And so mm. the naming gives us a bit of ground in this vast sea of groundlessness of a life and the groundlessness being highlighted, amplified during these micro moments, during these smaller transitions. Mm. Every night we're going into a transitional space, meaning that there is likely some element of loss because that's part of the definition of transitions. There is a loss, there is a liminal space, and there is a rebirth, a new beginning, right? We see it in nature. We see it in all of our bigger transitions. And where there is loss, we are losing a day. That's what we're losing. We're losing, we're, we're shifting out of that day that will never happen again. Mm -hmm. And the highly sensitive person feels that. And that doesn't have to be a bad thing. There can be so much goodness in the recognition and aliveness in the recognition of that feeling of loss or longing or groundlessness. And so we start by naming it. I'm in the vulnerable liminal space of evening into night. What 
emotions might be here that need my attention? Can I pause? Can I slow down enough to feel into the layers of loss, to feel what lives there? As you were talking, I was remembering so vividly being a kid, being in elementary school and middle school, especially like those ages from five to 13 and the feeling of dread or anxiety that I would start to feel as the sun started to set Mm -hmm. (laughs) that very particular feeling as the light started to change. And I, I wonder if some of it is also that for highly sensitive people, things like school and work can just be overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And that as the sun starts to go down, you're like, oh, I have to do it all over again. Mm. Yes. I wonder if that feeling was different for you in the summer months. Do you have any memory of that? I think it was. I think it was very much during the school year. Yes. I think that that evening into nighttime means the next day is coming again. And if the next day is fraught with its own overwhelm and anxiety, then we're going to feel it the day before. Hmm. Um, I wonder too, if there's something in the highly sensitive person that is, mm, well, as I said, tapped into that sense of loss, that something shifting and leaving, but also for me, when I think back in those early years, I remember the light of that, that time of day. And I remember feeling very lonely and I remember being physically alone, my parents working and my brothers somewhere. But I think even if others were around, I felt a loneliness Yeah. Um, that, you know, it makes, I track so many things back to one of the ways I think we're supposed to be living, which is in more, more of a sense of community but meaningful community, not just having people around, but, but entering into that evening into nighttime space, you know, in my fantasy anyway, of, of more communal living or more indigenous living that it would be entered into with the cousins and the aunties and the uncles cooking, getting ready, perhaps a fire, perhaps there's some sense of some being around the fire, telling stories that there's there's a communal acknowledgement of the, the vulnerability of night. Mm. And that one way that we traverse and tolerate that vulnerability is in the togetherness. Mm. That maybe we're not supposed to be alone. Mm. Uh, I mean, we're not. We're not supposed to be alone. We're not solitary beings. We are social beings. But maybe there's there's some archetypal primal sense in the highly sensitive person that senses into that specifically in that late afternoon into evening time. Yeah, it's really interesting because I remember that I, I wouldn't always feel as anxious when it was actually nighttime as I did during that mm-hmm. that in between yes. time, right? Yes. There's also something about kind of the uncertainty or the in-betweenness that's like so uncomfortable 
especially for, for people who experience a lot of anxiety and just always want it to be like, it's this or that it's daytime or nighttime, you know? Yes. Yes. It's a liminal time. Mm-hmm. It is an in-between time that late afternoon into evening, maybe yeah, evening itself, even because it's not quite night. Mm-hmm. And so it's that twilight, it's the twilight hour. Right. Um, it reminds me of, you know, raising when my kids were young, having babies. And babies often cry nonstop through that twilight hour, sometimes mm-hmm. for an hour straight. And it's like they're tapping into that un- very, very uncomfortable, sort of distressful time of I'm not taking my afternoon nap. It's not bedtime yet. Maybe I'm hungry. Maybe I'm not. What am I doing mm-hmm. as a human? <laughs> <laughs> it's like when babies realize, oh no, I, I've signed on to this incredibly uncomfortable, uncertain life mm-hmm. and nothing feels quite right right now. And we have an innate fear of the dark. I hear what you're saying, Victoria. It's not even the night, the night itself that was scary. It was that pre-time mm. that's scary. I think for kids, especially the dark is scary. Yes. And that, that makes sense, right? It's probably why one of our first inventions was fire. We had to find a way to light up the darkness. And we understood that our safety was in being together, that in until recently, and still in many cultures and parts of the world, families have slept in the same room, often in the same bed. And I know from raising my two highly sensitive sons and working with highly sensitive people all over the world, that nighttime is often when the shadows are unleashed. Yes. Not only our fears, but also our vulnerabilities and our need for close connection. All of that is highlighted. So when I hear of a child, you know, a client's child or somebody's child who doesn't want to sleep alone, I think, of course she doesn't. Mm. Or the child who needs a parent in the room as they were falling asleep, as my kids did for many, 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 many years. And I think, of course, it's so vulnerable, so vulnerable. So we as adults still carry those remnants. We still carry that into that nighttime space, especially if we weren't ushered across those thresholds, accompanied across those tenuous times, which most of us weren't if we were left alone which most of us were, that we carry that sort of breathless place, those aches and longings and fears and vulnerabilities into the current transition of night. And we avoid it and we distract and we delay going to bed. And we have a lot of people have almost a nameless dread that overcomes them at nighttime. I'm familiar with that as well. And I think it's because we sense that this is a liminal time. We sense the vulnerability of not only the time before sleep, but also of sleep itself. That sleep itself requires complete surrender 
to the unconscious. Some people say it's a taste of death. So there is hardly anything more groundless than sleep. No wonder it scares us. And so we're bringing our history to that moment. We're bringing just the experience of being human and being a highly sensitive human to that moment, right? There's so much embedded in those pre-sleep and sleep hours that we really don't spend a lot of time talking about. Yes. Oh my gosh. There was so much in that. It's so good. (laughs) It's funny because while there was a certain dread in that, that sunset time, that early evening, at the same time, there were also periods of my life where I was very fearful at night um, Mm. as well. And it, again, as you were talking, I was remembering, oh yeah, my first panic attack was at night. Mm -hmm. I was transitioning into high school and there were a couple of things that happened, but that day at school, my, my teacher was talking about the bird flu and how there was going to be a terrible pandemic and we were all going to be quarantined. And that night I was lying in bed and that's when I had my first panic attack. And then the panic attack started happening at night. Yes. When I was trying to go to bed, I did feel scared, very scared. And I had to fall asleep with the 2005 adaptation of Pride and Prejudice playing on a little mini DVD player for months. (laughs) Yes. 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 And it's interesting you bring up the TV because I've had so many clients for whom falling asleep with the TV is the only way they Mm -hmm. can fall asleep, that it's a huge source of comfort. Um, And I completely understand that, that that level of comfort of not being alone in the room, right? Of the TV, the TV being the proxy for the village, really, or for um, maybe maybe more secure attachment, or maybe people with whom you can share your inner world, even though of course it's one directional, you, you are privy to their inner world, but it makes you feel connected in some way to, to the greater humanity, right? Um, but as you were sharing that, I thought back to my first sleep. Well, I had a lot of trouble sleeping as a very young child, actually. Um, I would often drag my sleeping bag to my parents. There was a hallway outside their bedroom and I would drag, I had this cotton green cotton sleeping bag with big pink flowers that I loved very much. And I would drag it to the hallway that just was the size of the sleeping bag. And we had a German shepherd and she would come and sleep with me. Her name is Duchess Mm. and that she was just a huge source of comfort. And I think animals often are, well, I know they are deep source of comfort for kids and for grownups. And especially around, around sleep, around these places where we feel alone. Um, But the other place that came to mind was my first experience of insomnia when I transitioned from elementary school to junior high. And back then it was seventh grade when junior high started and it was a different school. And I was, I loved my elementary school so much, very, very secure and comfortable there. And I was very insecure to start this new school. I was very insecure socially. 
There was a group of girls that intimidated the heck out of me. Mm -hmm. Um, They were cool. They were popular. They had all the right clothes and they were in a dance company. And I was not that I was not popular and I was not cool. And, and I couldn't fall asleep at night. It was the first time in my life when I had trouble falling asleep. Um, And I often think about that. And I think about how we tend to overlook the link between insomnia and anxiety and how insomnia like anxiety is a messenger and that when we have trouble sleeping, it's not always because of something that we're not looking at emotionally or psychologically, something that wants our attention, but sometimes it is. Um, But in any case, it's a messenger that there's something off physically, like when I don't walk, when I don't walk enough, when I don't move my body, I have a much harder time sleeping, right? I just get that restless leg feeling in my body. Um, But it also makes me think about that liminal time at the end of the day, which is kind of like all transitions, it's, it offers an opportunity for review. And I think in many traditions and many religious traditions, there is an invitation and encouragement to review one's day. No, from through the lens of compassion, not through the lens of let me beat myself up for all the ways that I messed up today, not through that lens, but through the lens of let me be curious about where was I at today and what did I do well and where did I show up and what is kind of niggling at me. Perhaps there's a place in one of my friendships that I'm trying to push underground that needs my attention or with a family member or with my partner or with one of my kids. Maybe there's something in my work life. Maybe there's something that needs to be shaken up in some way. And so taking time to self-reflect and review the day, because if we don't, the thing about night is that there's no escape. It's one of those confronting times where there's nowhere to run. And we're asked to face the places that we can avoid when we're busy and life is noisy during the day. So these liminal times bring into high relief the places that we can distract from and shove down during typical life. And it's very confronting when you are left with yourself, nowhere to run. And here we are, here you are in the dark of night, nowhere to go. Yes, you can turn on the TV, right? And then maybe you'll fall asleep and then maybe you'll wake up in that two to 4 a.m. witching hour because still your psyche has something to tell you and is knocking on your door. And so wakes you up with the hope that you'll listen. So this is one reason why I journal every night. It's one of my rituals. I review my day. I scan 
my inner world and I put onto paper what needs attention. Places where I might be struggling, places where I might be carrying worry. And I don't journal to necessarily arrive at answers or to get rid of the worry, although sometimes some clarity might arrive. But I journal to bring some closure to the day. I empty out contents of my mind and heart during this time of more quiet, less distraction, so that I can go into sleep more cleared out. I don't think we're ever totally cleared out, but more cleared out in mind and heart. Oh, I have so many thoughts. I'm going to try to gather. So I'll just, I'll name first that I think for many anxious minds, the idea of psyche trying to tell you something is like very scary. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's interesting because there's a spiritual practice called the examine. Have you heard of this? From you. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. So in Ignatian spirituality, there's this practice called the examine that is often done at the end of the day where you sit in the presence of God or how you would conceive of God mm-hmm. and practice gratitude and review your day. And I think I used to practice that a bit. And what stops me is like perfectionism. Like, oh, I don't want to see. Mm. Like you said, that that compassion piece is so important. So like, I don't, I don't want to beat up on myself for the ways that I didn't live up to the person that I want to be, or, you know, that anxious fear of, oh my gosh, like what is psyche trying to tell me or journaling as a way of overanalyzing or ruminating or obsessing, you know, and getting into this heightened state of anxiety at night. Yes. So it's just really interesting because you and I were talking before recording about bedtime procrastination and how there are so many reasons why we might procrastinate going to bed from maybe you during the day are so consumed by other people's needs, whether at work or with children Mm. that you just cherish that quiet time. Maybe you're naturally a night owl and you just feel more alive and creative at night. But then there's also, like I was saying, I know that there's a certain avoidance for me where I'm scrolling, I'm scrolling. All of a sudden I'm reading a People Magazine article about a celebrity that I don't even mildly care about and like their latest breakup. And I'm like, why am I reading this at Mm. 1230 on a Tuesday. Yes. And that's where I think there's some avoidance of, oh no, like what's going to come to me in the stillness. Mm. Yes. Um, So the anxious mind, very scared of stillness, of silence, of slowing down. I'm turning inward, particularly if there's a, if a specific anxiety theme, like relationship anxiety, being terrified that what you're going to hear is you have to leave your relationship. And 
that is typically not the case. And if you are in a loving, well-matched relationship, it is really not the case. So it's an act of courage to turn around and face the night, to slow down and be willing to be in that space of silence and stillness. It takes a lot of courage and it takes naming that anxious mind that is so afraid of what you're going to discover and bringing in that other mind, that inner parent, that voice of wisdom, that compassionate friend that can respond to that fear with something like, of course you're scared and I'm right here with you. And whatever we discover is going to bring me closer to myself. It's not going to bring me further away. That's not, Psyche is not in the business of disconnecting us from ourselves. It's the opposite. That when I turn inward, what I discover is me. And yes, there will be emotions there that might be difficult to feel. There might be um, thoughts that are uncomfortable, but those are, those are spinning anyway. It's just about recognizing that they're there and then realizing that you have a choice point for how you want to respond to them. But often, you know, when I'm up in that two to four time and I resist the impulse to just look at my phone and instead look out into the night and be with the night, what often comes is a poem. So anxious mind is so scared. What am I going to find? But then there's the reframe and the flip. What might you find? What gold might you find in the middle of the night? What lost song or poem or um, you know, voice of psyche? What forgotten dream might bubble up in the middle of the night? Anxiety is always anticipating worst case scenario. But it's one of our tasks is to learn to reframe. What if it's something positive? Yeah. Yeah. And what if it even is like that beautiful, painful memory that bubbled up for you, Victoria, that you shared at the beginning? That's, that's such precious gold. Right? To have that kind of early memory, that felt experience in your body to hear your dad's voice, to remember the exact song, you know, in that time when it was two other siblings, you know, before the, the, the last two came around. That's such a beautiful, precious nugget of gold that grows up for you in that space of stillness in the safety of, of the secure attachment next to Martin, it wouldn't have come if you were scrolling and reading something on people. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way. And so, yes, you might discover a memory. Yes, you might discover a place of grief. Those layers and layers of grief that we tend to push down in our grief phobic culture. But to me, that's the gold. And I know I'm not in the majority to, <laughs> to name those experiences as gold, but they really are. And I think we know that 
that when we breathe into those spaces, the gold is, yes, the space itself, but also what it opens up inside of us. That grief is the gateway into aliveness and joy. You know, and our memories are our stories, our connection to our family members, which of course are not always positive, but they're still ours. They're still our stories and they deserve and they need to be heard, even if only by our own selves as adults. And so often it's like that tenderness of, I love these people so much, (laughs) or there can be pain too, but there can be the ache of just, even if it's complicated love, like so much of being a highly sensitive person is like, I just, there are so many people and so many things that I love about the world. Yes. Yes. And so I think it brings us to this place, conversation about ritual and healthy ritual and our need, our deep soul, human need for healthy rituals that can guide us across these tenuous thresholds that have always guided us, but we are now a ritual bereft culture. Um, that bedtime rituals are essential. And there's some part of us that knows this. That's why we sing babies to sleep and we rock them and we tell them bedtime stories, Mm -hmm. stories, right? We surround them in story and song and we pray and we say, thank you. So there are these rituals are these places that we can learn to rely on that can bring comfort because they connect us to something bigger than ourselves. And the trick here is to find bedtime rituals that are meaningful for you, because if you're part of a religious tradition, you will have those rituals, but many people are not connected to religious traditions, traditional religion, Um, but we still need the rituals. We still need those practices that offer a sense of okayness, of comfort, the sense that you're being held in safe arms, that you're connected, that you're not alone. And so for me, it's it's about being in practices that help me to be in reciprocal relationship, in that sense of giving and receiving with something invisible. Um, So when I stand at the doorway, the sliding glass door in our bedroom, and I look out at the night, I bless the night. I bless the moon and the trees and the stars. And by blessing the night, what I mean is I say, thank you. To me, blessings are expressions of gratitude. Thank you, night. Thank you, apple tree. Thank you, stars. Thank you, moon. And what comes back to me is a sense of safety and connection. And so this is such a deeply ingrained practice for me that I can almost hear 
the stars and the trees and the moon and the night receiving my gratitude. It would, to me, it, if I didn't do it, it would be like not saying good night and I love you to my children. It's so much a part of me now. So I, 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 I hear them receiving me and I hear them saying good night back to me. I don't literally hear the words, but I, I feel it. And so when I do this, then I'm now held in this web. I'm held you know, like a baby wrapped in a very warm and safe blanket. And again, everybody, everyone needs to find their own, their own practices, whether it's gratitude. And I say needs to find, you know, nobody needs to do anything, but if you feel drawn to creating a bedtime ritual for yourself, I think you know, a reciprocal practice, something that taps you into reciprocal relationship that gives you that sense of being held can be transformative. It can transform a time of dread or resistance into quite a beautiful time of gold. Mm. I think it's so important what you're saying about finding a ritual that is meaningful to you because I think that sometimes it's, I can certainly speak for myself that now here I am at 29 for most of my twenties, I was always trying to do a ritual that I'm like, Oh, Cheryl would do this or whoever, you know, someone I admire, they would do this. And, and mm -hmm. I, I should do what they would do. And I should feel this way. And I'm trying to have this experience and I'm trying to be in this state or be this person. And it's kind of like knowing that vegetables are good for you. They're nutritious. They make you feel good, <laughs> but thinking, well, it has to be broccoli and maybe you don't actually really like broccoli at all. And so there's nothing pleasurable about it. <laughs> you yeah. don't enjoy it. You try to force it down your throat. You end up throwing it out, letting it rot in your fridge and eating potato chips every day. Right. <laughs> and then one day you discover like, Oh, I really like zucchini. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes. Or artichokes or, or artich yeah. What, whatever it is, like there are so many vegetables and it doesn't have to be a punishment <laughs> to eat <Yes>. them. <laughs> yes. Because then it just becomes another should another way that you're failing, another way that you're not living up. Yes. I think it really is so important to find something that you genuinely enjoy and, and take some pleasure in as well. Even if sometimes you feel resistance around it, but generally like when you do it, you're like, ah, oh. absolutely. Yes. And the bit about, even if you feel some resistance around it is also very important because any ritual like exercise, moving our bodies, eating well is a lot harder. It requires more effort than scrolling. Pretty much anything requires more effort than scrolling. So if we're going to shift out of the habit of 
phones being the last thing that we see before entering sleep. And anyone who knows my work knows that in every course I've ever offered and practically every webinar I've ever done repeatedly on Instagram, I give the very strong advisement, encouragement to leave your phone in a different room, get an alarm clock if that's the way that you wake up. It's very hard to enter into soul time and transition um, more gracefully and, and with more nourishment into sleep if the phone is the last thing that you look at. Um, and again, being kind to ourselves, there are certainly nights when the phone is the last thing I look at and it's right next to my bed. But for me, 95% of the time, it doesn't live in my bedroom. It lives downstairs. And that makes it a lot easier to not have it be my last contact before bed. So yes, something pleasurable and, and it can be so small. It can be just mm -hmm. one minute because I know we, we can get, tend to get overwhelmed by, oh my gosh, what, what do you mean a ritual? I have to create a whole ritual and this and that and light a candle and say a prayer and do all these things. No, it can be one mindful, nourishing minute that brings you into connection to yourself and to something bigger than yourself. And there's going to be resistance because it requires effort. And anything that requires effort often is met with resistance. We like to take the path of least resistance. We all have a place of fundamental laziness inside of us. And I say that with great compassion and love for our lazy parts. But if we don't find that other place inside that says, I know you don't feel like brushing your teeth, but we're going to brush our teeth anyway, because we don't want to get cavities. And for many people, teeth brushing is now an ingrained habit. It's hard to imagine going to sleep without brushing teeth most nights, not everybody, but for a lot of people. So it's kind of like imagining if this was just built into our lives. And, and I think bedtime rituals are actually one of the rituals, like I mentioned earlier, that are more built in, you know, like your dad rocking your brother and singing him to sleep. That's a bedtime ritual. He was doing it to try to get your brother to go to sleep because that's how we help babies go to sleep. But there's a reason why those are the things we do that help babies go to sleep. We still need those things. We still have that baby inside of us. And so maybe you sing a song. Maybe you just sit and rock in a rocking chair and look out at the sky or at a tree that you can see from your window. Maybe you listen to music. Again, it's tricky because so much is on our phones these days. I actually have an actual CD player with an actual alarm in it next to my bed. I'm sure some people are like, what? <laughs> a compact disc machine? A compact disc? <laughs> yes, I might as well say I have like a like, albums. <laughs> Record players. Um, and I love it. I love that I have a place, a way to listen to music that is not dependent on my phone. But, 
you know, we also have voices. We can sing ourselves. We don't need any electronic device. So yes, it's finding your, finding your vegetable, finding your ritual that gives you some joy, some sense, I mean, hopefully a deep joy. Hopefully it connects you right into that place of goodness and that place of soul and that place of remembering that you're not alone. Yeah. This is actually something that I do really struggle with. So I just want to name for people listening. Like it's very hard for me to not bring my phone into the room at night. Mm -hmm. It's hard for me to get myself to brush my teeth. Sometimes Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's hard for me to stop working and say, it's okay to leave things unfinished. And it's okay and necessary and good to rest. Cause we also live in a very like productive production obsessed culture, right? Like yes. it is okay. You have to put it down at a certain point and you need to rest. Yes. And I think sometimes for me, it's as simple as just getting myself into bed and then just breathing and reminding myself there is nothing to do right now. Mm. And, oh, there's the restlessness. That's okay. Oh, there's the resistance. That's okay. Mm. Oh, my mind is really busy. That's okay. I'm just going to lie here and breathe. Mm. And I think that whole piece about possibly doing a ritual where you are like reviewing your day a little bit. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes like what happens at night is is sometimes a result of what's happening during the day in terms of like, how lonely are you? How, what does your work life look like? Are you, are you really depressed? You know, like all sorts of things I feel like sometimes can come to a head. Mm -hmm. And so, so there is that value, like you said, of taking stock of the day, not to beat yourself up, but to go, maybe I need to call a friend tomorrow. Yes. It brings to mind what you're saying, this idea of needs and how as infants, toddlers, children, whatever those may have been throughout the day, and then perhaps even coalescing and and being amplified at night when the distractions and the school and the friends and the homework and everything falls away. And so I love what you're saying about perhaps getting in touch with, with a need, with, with, with the feeling, which is the loneliness. And then the need, which is maybe I need to call a friend. Maybe I need to find a therapist. Maybe what's coming up is this depression that I haven't known how to even name that I haven't, that I've been scared to name. There is that fear of what am I going to discover in that liminal space, in that witching hour, middle of the night space. There is the recognition that resistance is quite often the fear of what am I going to learn? But also remembering that seen through a certain lens, through seeing through the lens of gathering gold, the lens of learning and growth and compassion and curiosity, that whatever you discover 
is important and has been trying to get your attention anyway and will continue to try to get your attention sometimes in louder ways. And so the resistance is protect, trying to protect you from something that eventually, eventually we are all asked to turn around and face. And yes, you may not be ready to do that and that's okay. There is also wisdom in resistance and it's hard to discern which one is it. So it's, it's okay to distract. It's all okay. Wherever you're at is okay. Have trouble brushing your teeth. That's okay. You have trouble committing to a regular practice. You are not alone. Most people have a lot of trouble committing to a regular practice, whether it's a journaling practice or a meditation practice, or just as sitting at the window, looking up at the night, inviting in a poem or a song practice. Most people really struggle with that. So that's always the starting point. And I love you so much, Victoria, for you, for, to, for, for you bringing that in um, and naming that piece. Because in the naming, we can also remember that we're not alone. So there's the normalizing, which reduces the shame, which opens the doorway to compassion. And that's a much more effective starting place to start with, it's okay if I don't do any of this. It's all okay. But maybe, maybe from that place of total self-acceptance, maybe I could just keep trying. Try again. Leave my phone in another room just for tonight. Doesn't have to be a lifetime commitment, just for tonight. And be curious about what arises. It's like laying everything down, laying down the work, laying down the thoughts, laying down the busy, laying down the doing, and letting ourselves rest and be. It's such a feminine principle that we all have and we all need and is sorely lacking that space of being, space of non-doing, non-achieving, non-striving, which the truth of the matter is, the more we honor that space, the more productive we can actually be. Yeah. And, you know, I love you for saying it's all okay and distraction's okay. You, you know, like I mm-hmm. needed, I needed Pride and Prejudice when I was 15 in that period of such intense panic that I just needed to regulate my nervous system. And that soundtrack and that opening scene of dawn breaking over the English countryside Mm. regulated my nervous system. And sometimes you, if you are in such dysregulation, you need to do what you need to do to, to soothe yourself and get through it. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's when we bow down to technology and television and what a beautiful image that still stays with you, right? That opening music, dawn breaking, that that was actually quite soulful. Well, and of course you, Victoria, choosing Pride and Prejudice. It's not like <laughs> you were, <laughs> it's not like you were watching like Ghostbusters. <laughs> and I was out within the first 
two minutes. <laughs> like it became, wow. it became, it was powerful. <laughs> wow. Instant sleep elixir. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And what a, what a beautiful one that you knew you needed and absolutely served a very, very positive function for you at that time in your life. Mm-hmm. And I, I know, again, many of my clients growing up on television, having it on, falling asleep, and still to this day, having it on, falling asleep. I have no judgment, none at all. It's only to ask, is this serving me? And many times the answer is yes, this is absolutely serving me. This is helping me fall asleep. And many people will say the same thing. I'm asleep in like 10 minutes. So yes. But my suggestion is is to simply as a suggestion, what might happen if before you get into bed, that all screens off, that you take some time to turn inward and to connect outward in that space of silence and stillness. Not instead of, but in addition to. This reminds me that I saw something on Instagram and I can't remember who posted it. So I'm sorry that I don't have the attribution, but it was so helpful to me and my anxious mind and heart. It was like, what if you thought of things as just trying to add good things to your life? Yes. As opposed to, I got to remove this and I got to remove this and I got to remove this. What if it was about, what can I add? Yes. That makes me feel good and at home and connected to myself and connected to other people and all of that. What, what good things can I add instead of, oh, I really, I got to rip all this stuff away. I love that so much. It's such a compassionate and also, um, very life affirming approach. Um, I think of it and I've read it also in terms of food Mm -hmm. that you take a very stringent approach. I'm getting rid of this and this and this and this and this and this before you know it, there's like barely anything left to eat. And it's very sad. Um, and the opposite is what you're saying. It's like, well, maybe I'll just start adding in more of my yummy vegetables, my zucchini and my corn and my artichokes, um, instead of eliminating. Mm -hmm. And it's the same here. I'm, I, I am, have no interest in telling people to get rid of their places of comfort. It's, it's, it is in addition to, Mm as an experiment. Yeah. Always as an experiment to be curious. What is this like? What shifts for me? What might open if I enter night or evening or right before bed doing something a little bit different? So maybe it's a good place to, to share a simple nighttime practice. That would be Wonderful. Okay. Listen to it all the way through and then just try to remember it as best you can so that you can place the recording outside the room. The first step is to put all of your screens away, preferably again outside the room, and then go to a window or a door you can see outdoors, where you can see maybe a tree or a plant or the sky. And if weather permits and you have access, open the door or window, get as close to the night 
as you can. And for about a minute or as long as you want, but it can be just a minute, can be very short and very simple. Be with the night, open all of your senses to the night, to the sounds, to the smells, to the sights. Notice, notice what you're hearing. Notice what you feel. And you might be hearing cars, you might be hearing sirens. See if you can focus on one element of nature, even if there are city sights and sounds all around you, one tree, one star, just the night sky itself, the moon, if you can see it in the sky. And then consciously shift to gratitude, into the reciprocal relationship, saying thank you out loud directly to what you see, to that one tree or one star, to the moon, to that one element of nature, just saying thank you. And then ask, what would you like me to know right now? What words of comfort can you send to me as I enter into sleep? And your only task in that moment is to listen and trust. Maybe a word or an image arrives, maybe a phrase or some lyrics from a song, maybe a melody. Trust it completely. And as you're falling asleep, replay whatever arrived, the phrase or the lyrics or the song or the word or the image, replay it in your mind, imagining that they are forming a warm blanket that is gently holding you, cradling you as you drift off to sleep. Ah, so beautiful. Thank you for that. Mm. And we both have a little bit of poetry to share as examples of some of the gold that can come to us at night. So Cheryl, would you like to share your poem first? Okay, so this is a poem I wrote last August called Mother Night. like a child who runs into her mother's arms after an absence, whether the end of a school day or a week at summer camp, to be gathered in the safe, warm folds of skin and clothes that carry the scent of safety and the perfume of love, the rush into arms that enfold you so that you feel safe enough to travel far into the world knowing that there will always be a place at her table when you return. And not only a place, but an adornment of your favorite foods and a house celebrating your arrival. These are the arms I run into at the day's end. When my children are asleep and husband is at work, I anticipate this reunion, listening for the crickets call from grass to balcony, like serenading Juliet. 
watching as the moon in her dark robes and scarves, nowhere to be seen in this sky, still sends down trails of song so I can take hold and find her. With a sleeping bag wrapped around me, just as it was as a child when I slept outside their door, I snuggle into the pillows of night and close my eyes until there is only me and her. Insects of summer lulling me on the wings of their lullabies. Nightlight stars raining down comfort. Blankets of dark moon tucking me in. The warm breeze, a light kiss on my cheek. Not too much, not too little. The kiss of a mother who knows how to love her daughter well. Mm. Speaks so beautifully to that idea of adding good things. Mm. Yes, the nourishment. Mm -hmm. And what you were saying, that if it's not something pleasurable, we're not likely to do it. That for me, there is so much joy, especially in the summer months of opening that door, stepping Mm. onto the balcony and listening to the crickets and feeling that warm air. It's a lot harder in winter, I must say. Yeah. (laughs) But that summer joy, you know, it is to me like running into her arms at the end of the day and receiving that deepest, deepest comfort, non-human comfort. It's a different kind of comfort. Mm, So helpful to hear you paint that Mm. image. I have a short poem that is speaking more to that restless, anxious feeling Mm -hmm. at night. (laughs) (laughs) This is called bedtime. The sleeping man is a raft. I'm the last one left. Sky is black, stars cloud hidden. I shiver against him trace distress with my finger on his arm, in his hair. He dreams. I ache and sink, think about splinters and freezing to death, things I shouldn't have said tonight, should say tomorrow. Stay my hand from throwing sparks. Let him go gentle. Let it be night. So beautiful, Victoria. That might be what I tell myself tonight. Just let it be night. Just let it be night. Yes. Without trying to change it or shape it or resist it or fight it. Let it be Mm -hmm. night. Mm -hmm. And letting yourself be however you are in the night. Yes. (sighs) Okay. As we come to a close now, Cheryl, where can people find you and your work? You can find me at my website, conscious-transitions.com and on Instagram at Wisdom of Anxiety. You can find me at my other podcast, Perennials, or on Instagram at Perennials Podcast. And if you are enjoying Gathering Gold, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, rate it and leave a review and share it with a friend if you think they might enjoy. Thank you for listening.